If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me uh, this morning to the book of Psalms. Psalm Psalm 119 is where we'll be today. Uh, we started uh, two two weeks ago on Psalm 119. I thought uh, we'll go back to it this week. Psalm 119, uh, if, uh, verses 57 through 64. Psalm 119, 57 to 64. <laughs> Now, I will read uh, this whole stanza uh, at the beginning of the sermon this morning. Verse 57 to 64, Psalm 119. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. All of us uh, in this world, on this, in this life, at various times, various moments, uh, to varying degrees, uh, face loss. Loss. We lose things. We lose people. Um, we lose opportunities. We lose uh, positions. Whether it's the loss of uh, a loved one, which is probably one of the most difficult losses, a loss of a relationship, or a loss of a job, loss of physical health, or a loss of a treasured item, there is often a natural response to loss in our life. Usually, it is accompanied by a sorrow, uh, sadness, and sometimes distress. If you think about something that you might have lost recently, uh, sometimes we lose things as simple as our car keys. Oh, where's my car keys? Uh, it, you can just feel it. It's, like, it's minor, but it, it is nevertheless a feeling of sorrow, feeling of distress that comes about. No matter great or small, when we lose something or someone, even temporarily, there's that tendency to feel sad or, or distress. And what each loss, you think about that, loss is really part of life. You can't avoid it. Each loss, especially in this world, reminds us that we live in a fallen world. Loss reminds us that we live in a fallen world. Ever since sin entered the human race, loss has become a part of the human experience. There was loss of paradise, loss of innocence, loss of life. The sobering reality is that in this life, everything we possess, everything, everything that we might call our own, that has your name on it, will eventually be lost. You cannot keep it. You cannot take it with you. When we die, we lose everything. But there is a hope for the believer in Christ. You would think that in face of such loss it's, and the emotions of sorrow and distress, that, boy, it's pretty, it's pretty dark. But there is a hope for the believer in Christ. For while we lose everything else in this life, eventually, 
We never, we do not ever lose our relationship with the Lord. We never lose our Lord. He is our eternal possession. He's always ours and we are always his. And that which we cannot lose makes every difference in our lives here and now and in our lives in eternity. I particularly remember and reflect upon what Jesus said in Matthew 6.20 when he said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. You see, here, there, he's running and said, store up for yourself a treasure in heaven, treasure that you cannot lose. Well, of course, we find out that that treasure is not only the promise of the kingdom, but it's, it's, the, promise, it's the promise of the kingdom through faith in the king. It's, it's the Lord Jesus that is our greatest treasure. The Lord is our greatest treasure and our greatest possession that we can ever attain in this world. It's better to lose everything and to gain Jesus than to have everything and not have Jesus. He is the treasure that when you possess can never be lost and is our reason for hope in the face of every loss. Today's passage begins with the the Old Testament equivalent of basically this thought. And that Old Testament equivalent is the phrase, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. He's my possession. He's my treasure is the, the idea of it. Today's passage, as we're going to look at, reminds the worshiper of the Lord, the, the, the psalmist is writing, that, that he, God, is our possession. He's our portion. He's our greatest treasure. And if he is, it will be reflected in our lives with regards to how we relate to the word of God. The key theme of our passage, it, it, though all of Psalm 119 is, is about the word of God, uh, the theme of our particular passage, this, these, this, these eight verses, is about obedience. Uh, that the one whose portion is the Lord, that is the follower of the, the worshiper of God, the follower of Christ, is one who obeys the Lord's words. So the one whose portion of the Lord is, is one who obeys the Lord's words. And that's going to be, that's really the, the main point of this passage. Before we look at a passage, just remind you again, just a little background of Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in all of the uh, psalms. And we learn in it of the treasure of God's word in the life of the worshiper of God. In it, the anonymous psalmist basically extols basically the preciousness of God's word, how God's word is such a treasure. Uh, it's, um, it's written in 22 different stanzas of eight verses each. And each stanza is, begins or is as associated with one of the Hebrew letters. So it's Aleph through Tau, and it goes all the way through in each of stanza. Every, eight, eight, every verse, eight verses, all begin with that, first, that letter of that alphabet. So it's an acrostic. What's also kind of interesting, I haven't really mentioned it, I've mentioned it maybe a long time ago, is that in this Psalm, in Psalm 119, we find many different words. We find exactly eight different words for the word of God. Things like, uh, sometimes we'll just say it's his word, or it might say his law, it might say his judgment, or his testimony, or his ordinances, but they essentially all refer to his word. So it's kind of this number eight, it's kind of, it's kind of repeats itself somewhere in this, in this psalm. And uh, in fact, uh, what's kind of neat about our current passage is that uh, seven out of the eight different words for uh, God's word is found in this particular section. Anyways, we're, we are on the eighth stanza today. 
the eighth stanza, and this eighth stanza, every all eight verses begin with the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the Hebrew, and that is the letter Heif. Oh, you gotta have it. It sounds like an H, but it's more guttural. Okay, Heif. Oh, yeah. Like you eat challah bread. You ever that? That's the that's that letter is the equivalent of this letter Heif. Okay. Anyways, uh, um, in the previous stanza, we looked at uh, how remembering God's word is the believer's hope in the face of various trials. But in this stanza, it's obedience to God's word is the response of then of one whose portion is the Lord. And the concept of obedience is, is reflected in the repeated verb keep, to the verb keep. We see it three times, verse 57, verse 60, verse 63. And these three occurrences basically highlight three points of this, uh, of this, uh, st- of this passage. So we're going to look at, as an outline for us, finally, uh, three characteristics of those whose portion is the Lord, in particular in regard to the word of God. So three characteristics of those whose portion is the Lord. And so those whose portion is the Lord, those who possess the Lord, those who, uh, whose treasure is the Lord, are first characterized by this, by a promise to keep the Lord's words, a promise to keep the Lord's words. This is in verses 57 to 58. Look at there with me. Uh, the, the psalmist writes, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. The first line in verse 57 is, the, is this phrase that is, is so rich in, in theology. It's, it's rich in historical background in the Old Testament. The Hebrew noun for portion appears 60 times, two times in the Old Testament. And most commonly refers to basically having a share, a portion, a part in an inheritance. It's that kind of idea. And one particularly Old Testament passage, though, shapes this word's meaning for the people of God, for Israel. And it's found in the book of Numbers. We're going to be looking at that in about two weeks. So, uh, you know, hopefully you're taking time to read about that. But in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 18, 20, and later on it's going to be the same truth is reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9. We see this, what is this being written by Moses? Okay, we read this. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And the same truth is repeated in Deuteronomy 10.9. Therefore, Levi, basically the tribe that Aaron Aaron belongs to, or uh, uh, yes, does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. So the promised land, you remember, was divided among the tribes of Israel. And every tribe received a portion of the land. It was kind of divided. You've ever seen those maps in your, in your Bible somewhere. And every tribe received a portion of the land as their inheritance. It was their part from God for, uh, that was part of the promised land for them. Now, every tribe except, of course, the tribe of Levi. We know this. Uh, because Levi, the tribe of Levi, became the Levites. And they became, were called by God because, uh, as particularly the sense Aaron, to be the priests and the servants within the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and eventually the, te- uh, the temple. So for their service to the Lord in the temple, their portion, according to God's word, was himself. He says, I'm not going to give you land. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to be your portion. I'm going to be your inheritance. I'm going to be your possession. Every other tribe, you know, you know, hey, uh, you know, if you ever want to invest, you know, land's a great thing to invest in, right? You want to invest in land. 
But, you know, even greater investment than land is to invest in the Lord. Because land you can lose. Land will be burned up. And I, I know that a lot of people here invest in property. That's a pretty wise of you. But more importantly, more wisely, invest in the Lord. It help you find your possession, your inheritance in the Lord. So for these, these, this tribe of Levi, they possessed the Lord. Instead of receiving provision from working the land, they had no land to work. They had no farmland where they could work and grow, grow uh, either uh, grow crops or, or raise cattle or raise uh, animals. They instead received their provision from serving the Lord in the tabernacle, in the temple. That's where all the offerings that were brought to the Lord's house would be proportioned and divvied up and given to the different priests and the different Levites. So this phrase then, the Lord is my portion, then began to carry this idea that one's provision, one's sufficiency, one's hope is found in their possession of the Lord himself, in their faith in God. This relation was not just for the Levites, so there's that, the, this, uh, the specific reference to the Levites, but this relationship became as reflected among the Israelites also, that it became a phrase that could be applied to them. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 16, we read this. God, there is a description of God standing in contrast to the idols in that day. And Jeremiah writes, the portion of Jacob, by the way, Jacob is another word for Israel, a name for Israel. The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. See, the Lord God is the portion of Jacob. He's, idols are not, uh, are not the portion of Jacob, but it's the God himself is the portion of Israel, of Jacob. Even as in the latter part of this verse, Israel is the inheritance of God. So God is their inheritance, is Israel, but also Israel is God's inheritance. There's a, a mutual belonging. I am his and he is mine. You think of that, that phrase. There is a mutual belonging between God and his chosen people. So the Lord is my portion became an expression of worship and trust in the Lord among Israel, as we see in the Psalms. We see in the, today's Psalm. We also see it in Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is, my portion, is the portion of my inheritance. Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 142, verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Even as everything is lost and all else fails, the worshiper of God still possesses the Lord himself. You may lose everything. You may lose all things at different times, but you will never lose your possession, Lord. And that, in the face of loss, is better than anything else one could have. No one or nothing can give you what the Lord gives. He is your greatest treasure. He is our greatest treasure. You see, one cannot know how great this treasure is, however, apart from observing the word of God. You cannot know how great the portion of the Lord. You, you can say the Lord's your portion. We can all sing that the Lord is mine. But we don't know how great that is unless we know God's word, unless we grasp God's word. It's like having a new gadget. 
new gadget, new gizmo. I was going to say, uh, you know, I can think of many different gadgets, but recently so there was a one lovely family in this church gave us an air fryer, you know, this air fryer for the air pot. Air, whatever, whatever, you know, it's called air fryers, right? You know what air fryers are? They, they fry the chicken without, you know, oil. That's amazing stuff. Anyways, it's, it's this weird contraption. It looks like a helmet, actually. But uh, it's a, um, and so it has a lot of buttons, a lot of features on it. It's a little overwhelming, to tell you the truth. And I can have it sit in my kitchen. And I'm going to sit leave it there on top of my refrigerator. But you know what? If I leave it on top of my refrigerator, even though I have this wonderful, beautiful air fryer, it will do nothing for me, correct? I would not know how great this air fryer is. Unless I start reading the manual. So when I read the manual, then I start realizing, oh, I could do this. I could do this. I could do, I could fry chicken. I could fry chocolate. I could fry whatever I want in this air fryer because I read the manual. But having read the manual, I still don't, I'm not enjoying the, the blessings of this air fryer, right? Until I do what? Until I follow the instructions in the manual. Until I actually do what the manual says. I've got to actually follow it, and when I follow it, then I'm going to know that, oh, this is some good fried chicken without any oil. This is air-fried chicken. Amazing. I am able to, when I follow the manual's instructions, I'm able to experience the intended satisfaction and delight of having an air fryer. How much more, in this way, in an infinitely greater way, is the possession of the Lord. He comes with a manual. His manual is his word. And when it's great to have it, it's better to read it. It's far better to observe it, keep it, follow it. That's how we know how great the possession of our our portion of of the Lord is. The psalmist has promised to keep the Lord's words. And that's what he does. He said, I promise to keep your word. And in doing so, he has basically sought God's favor. He sought literally God's face. He wants to see God's face with all his heart. He's not necessarily looking for a blessing, like a, a blessing by keep, like he's not making negotiating. Well, I'm going to keep a, keep a promise so that you will give me a favor. He wants to keep God's word, keep the word of God so that he can see God's face. He wants to know God. You want to know God more? Follow his word. Follow his will. When you follow the instructions of our God, you will know him more. The one who keeps God's word gets to know God more intimately. Many people today seek after God. They want to know God, but they seek him apart from the Bible, apart from the scriptures. They will go to the mountains to look for God. They will go to the oceans to look for God. They will go to other people to look for God. They go to drugs or some other experience to look for God. But God is first and foremost found in his word. If you want to know the Lord more, if you want to love him more, if you want to see him more, if you want to experience the Lord more, then it begins with a commitment, a promise to keep God's word. That's what the psalmist is saying when he says, I promise, I have promised to keep your word. In so doing, you will then know him more. You'll know his will, his plans for your life. And when you'll realize what a blessing it is to know the Lord, what a blessing it is to have the Lord as my portion as you follow his word. Well, the psalmist ends this section with, with a prayer. As he'll, actually, he'll end every section with a prayer. And he says, his prayer is, be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious to me according to your word. He prays, trusting the Lord to graciously provide for him uh, what he needs according to God's promises. Because the Lord is his portion, he's promised to keep God's words, trusting that in his obedience to God's word, 
the Lord will graciously provide whatever he needs. That's, 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 that's what's at work here. See, the promise to keep the Lord's words, however, necessitates that the psalmist actually keep God's words, right? And this is our second point. And in our second point, and point number two, is that those whose portion of the Lord are also characterized by a, the practice to keep the Lord's words, the practice to keep the Lord's words. In verses 59 to 62, 59 62, look there with me. <clears throat> the psalmist considers, he continues writing, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. There's our uh, key verb. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. The psalmist in verse 59 is basically challenged by the Lord's words, right? He says, I considered my ways. He, he had sought God. He had promised to keep God's word. He'd sought uh, God's favor, God's face by being in his word. And then as he does that, he starts considering his ways. God's word does that. When we come to God's word, it causes us to consider our ways. And what he does is when we consider our ways, we ultimately then have to turn, turn our feet, in a sense, figuratively speaking, turn our feet to follow God's word. And this is what ought to happen to all of us regularly when we study God's word, right? I think we all kind of, many of us know this already, because uh, the word of God is like a mirror. It's designed to basically, even though it's God's words, it's meant to show us who we ought to be as people. And what inevitably what happens is because it's a mirror which shows us what we ought to be, you, you, you can't help but see where your life, if you're open to looking, where your life is not ought to be, right? That, it happens. Yeah, it happens when you look to the word of God. You can't help it. And it shows then, like, oh, I need to, if I consider my ways carefully, look, look at the word of God, then I will naturally... If I'm a believer, if I want to keep God's words, I've promised to do so, and I desire to do so, then I'm going to turn my feet. I'm going to turn my feet to a different, to follow his ways. Uh, If we're sensitive to the Spirit's leading, when we come to the Scriptures, we are going to often find instances, as well as areas of our life, that fall short of God's word. As Paul wrote to uh, Timothy, right, Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's what happens to us when we study come to God's word. It corrects us. It, it reproves us. It, it shows us really how we can train and, and kind of return to a, a pattern of righteousness. Hopefully every time that you and I come to God's word, we don't just do it out of you know a habit or just because it's like it's duty, but out of it, we really come to come to God's word to desire with a desire to examine our lives. Even now, uh, hopefully, it's not just you know um, it's my uh, that it's not just kind of um, going through the motions, but it's actually a genuine desire to Lord help me to consider my ways and help me to turn my feet to your ways as, as needed. When the Lord shows you your sin or where you fall short, then make it your practice to turn your feet away from sin and toward God. What's more, verse 60 tells us to do so without delay. Don't hesitate. When the scriptures show you an area of your life that you need to, to correct, to change, to, be, to turn away from, <clears throat> don't delay. The psalmist basically, he says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. There's our key verb. 
There's a common saying that many of you all often heard, people often say that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is, dis, is, is disobedience. <clears throat> Sometimes when the Lord shows us our sin, uh, <clears throat> we know that we need to correct it, right? We know, oh, I know that's wrong. I, I need to correct that. But then what do we do? Sometimes we delay in doing so. I, I know I need to get rid of this idol in my life, but I'm going to keep it for one more week. We come up with so many excuses to put it off what we need to do. And what often happens is that when, that, when we do that, and sometimes we follow through, but more often than not, when we delay to obey, we basically are ignoring the Spirit's conviction in our lives. We're, that's what we're doing at that moment. We're ignoring, well, I'm, I know I'm convicted by it, but I'm, you know, I'm going to do it later. I'm going to do it next week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go make amends with that brother or sister next week. Next time I see them. I, I didn't get to see them today. Next time. And we, oftentimes what that happens, it gives an opportunity for our flesh to change our mind. Say, well, it's, it's really not that bad. Well, it's, you know, I, I could do something about it later. And then we never, later never comes. Or maybe even we might uh, deceive ourselves and think, well, <clears throat> it's really not that bad. It's not as bad as Pastor Henry, you know, his sins up there. If you're wrestling with sin and you know it's sin, God's, and God's word shows you it's sin, do not delay. Don't delay. Don't hesitate in making every effort to correct that in your life. Begins, the immediately should just begin by, by confession to the Lord and repentance. Confessing to the Lord. Asking him to forgive you. And ask the Lord, show me how I can correct this in my life. Sometimes it, it may be a pattern, right? So it, if it's a pattern, then it's going to involve a, some changing of mind, changing of thoughts, <clears throat> changing my, <clears throat> my attitudes, my correcting my, my thoughts. Or if it's a one-time thing, <clears throat> maybe you saw, oh, I guess it was wrong for me to punch my brother. I should go. I, I, that one-time thing only. I better go talk to him and ask for forgiveness. You know, it's an instance. Anyways, <clears throat> that's what the psalmist does. He, he, he doesn't hesitate. When he, when he comes to God's word, he's practiced. He allows it to correct him. He, allows him to, he examines himself, and then he doesn't hesitate in his obedience. Now, however, <clears throat> sometimes the, the, obedient, the, hesit, the difficulty of obedience is, is uh, internal, but sometimes the, the difficulties of obedience is external. As we see <clears throat> in the following verses, <clears throat> obedience is difficult because of the oppression of others. The psalmist describes his circumstances here. You look at verse 61. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. He writes, these enemies uh, that he's referring to, we've already been introduced to them in the, earlier in the psalm. We saw them in verse 51 and 53 most recently. Uh, these are the arrogant. These are the wicked who forsake God's law. And, and they deride the psalmist because he follows God's law. They are those who they want to lay traps. They want to lay snares to tempt and prevent him from obeying God's law. I don't know how many of you think about that, you know, you, you don't, <clears throat> we don't literally uh, see people, unbelievers in the world laying down, you know, traps or snares to try to, to catch us. But if we look carefully, we consider what the world does. There's many ways that the world lays traps for us to, to cause us to forsake God's law. Sometimes it's peer pressure. Sometimes it's social pressure. Think about the, the presence of social media and how much social media pressure comes down and moves whole corporations, much less a small person, individual like yourself. 
There are uh, threats of being uh, uh, being canceled, doxxed, labeled. Even nobody wants today. The the worst label to have is to be a is to be a, a racist. I think that's probably the one of the that's what they're being thrown around a lot these days in our in a kind of public realm. It's a uh, you can't get that. You can't you can't really wipe that off. And it's trust me, it, it is it is it is a sin to be racist, but yet it's easily thrown around. You don't want to be labeled that. And sometimes. And that and these labels can come be thrown around and just to intimidate you to follow, <clears throat> to, to not to forsake God's laws. But not for the psalmist. He does not allow the, the pressure, the social pressure, the traps, the snares that are laid for him to cause him to forget God's law. <clears throat> In the earlier section, verse 51, he had written this. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet did I do not turn aside from your law. Here, he writes quite very similarly, the cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. Just listen to the parallelism there. It says, the world may do this to make me to forget, to forsake your word, but I will not forget. I will not turn aside from your law. I will remember your word. I will keep your word. And so this gives us a key or just a a, a, a a, some instruction that the regular reflection and meditation upon God's word helps the psalmist to resist the temptations from the world. Regular reflection, meditation upon God's word will help us to resist the temptation. Sometimes the temptations are, are, are slow building. They're basically, uh, it's basically the, the world on a, a it's a, it's, it's like a long con game. You know, the more we are exposed to the, to the world, the more we are influenced by the world's thinking, right? And we can't, resist, we can't it's hard to resist it, to tell you the truth, because we're always exposed to the things of the world, to the world's philosophies. Or we, we see it on the television shows. We see it in the movies. We, we read it in the books. We, we read it in whatever, you know, news sites we, we have. We, it's in our, the songs that we, we, we sing, or we listen to all these ways in, the, in, in popular media are ways that the world's, the world's perspective, the world's view, really, comes into our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably more influenced by our world than by God's word. Though we ought to be more influenced by God's word than the world. In fact, it doesn't mean, of course, we should like just jettison everything in the world. What we should is that we should be so filled with the knowledge of God's word so that it becomes a filter for us when we interact with the, the world, when we listen to the music, when we watch the movies, we read the books, that it filters for us so that we can see and understand that, that oh, that's, that's a trap. That's, that's a think, way of thinking that leads to away from following God. Just like the previous section, um, the psalmist also ends this section with, with an expression of prayer. He gives thanks to the Lord because of his word. Interesting. It's kind of interesting. I just think uh, that he, it says, at midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you. You know, wow, that's really amazing. You know, for those of that are, you know, usually asleep at midnight, that's kind of crazy, you know. Well, this is more, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of, to me, that's like, I'm always up at midnight. So it's like at 6 a.m. I arise to pray, give thanks to your name. Oh, no, I'm never up at 6 a.m. Except on Sunday mornings. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, that is, it is, it's just getting up at a time when no one else is up. That's the idea. He, he gets up when no one else is up. When he's just alone, 
when you know, we know why he's up at midnight, why he chooses to get up at midnight is, is no real reason. It's not like commanded in scripture to get up at midnight to give thanks to God. It's, it's you know, don't make it your, you know, uh, you know like, a, like, a, like you have to do that or a matter of conscience for yourself. But it is in the night. It's kind of like in the middle of the night when, you're, when you rise up, maybe you're burdened by something or you just you happen to be up. Uh, you're alone with your thoughts. May you at that time, may the, like the psalmist, respond by giving thanks to God. He gives thanks at a time when, when few are awake, when one is alone with their thoughts. Because the Lord is his portion, the psalmist basically keeps the Lord's words as his continual practice, examining his heart, turning away from sin, obeying without delay, and remembering God's word. And when he does so, he experiences the fullness of God's provision and protection in his life. So that when he rises at midnight, he responds by giving thanks to God. He praises the Lord. He's thankful because he, through the observation, the, the keeping of the Lord's words, is able to experience all the blessings and the richness of the fact that the Lord is his portion. Well, there's a third characteristic. We move on thirdly. A third, there's a third characteristic that we learn of those whose portion is Lord, and that is they are characterized by people who keep the Lord's words. That those whose portion is Lord are going to be those who have people around them who keep the Lord's words. Verse 63, 64 says, I, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist expresses that he's, he's not alone in his desire to keep God's word. He's not alone. He, he's a, he is a companion of others who seek to do the same. He's a friend of those who seek to do the same. I, I came across a, just a real quote. I don't normally quote, by the way, uh, Bible dictionaries, but I just came across this one. I said, oh, that's really good. I got to quote it. So I'm going to quote it. Uh, this word companion, actually, there's a, it's under the Hebrew word for companion. But it, the theological word book of the Old Testament says this about this word. This word is used as an adjective and noun to refer to the very close bond that can exist between persons. In Aramaic, the term indicates the close relationship between Daniel and his three friends because of their common faith and loyalty to God. See, a companion is not just someone you're hanging with. It's not one of your homies, not just a friend, you know, not just, oh, you know, there were school, schoolmates or, oh, we're coworkers, you know, that's my kind of, no, that's not the idea. A companion is someone who has a very close bond. It's, it's, and it's pictured in the friendship between Daniel and his friends. All alone, taken into, away from their homeland to Babylon, where they're surrounded by social pressure, peer pressure to conform to the world. And uh, I think Pastor Ray just preached recently on, uh, on Daniel chapter 1. And we see how together, as companions, they're called Daniel's friends. They had a common faith, and they encouraged one another to loyalty to God. So here... The psalmist has close, expresses that he has close relationships with other people like-minded, uh, like-minded worshipers of God who fear the Lord and who keep God's words, who keep his words. They are united in this common bond. They're, they're, they're tight because of their common bond of fearing God and keeping God's word. You know, I know many of us here have friends. Some of you have a lot of friends. Some of you have a few friends. But all of us probably have friends from different activities, different interests in life. And they're, but they're, if you think about what Scripture is saying here, and if you really 
think about long haul, long term, there really, over time, ought not to be any closer bond than those than with those who also keep God's words. See, those who keep God's words share with you the same purpose, the same desires, the same direction, the same destination, the same worldview, the same principles that you live by. More importantly, you share other things. You share the same spirit, the same spirit that dwells within you and, and, and him or her, the same Savior and Lord, and the same Heavenly Father. It is the... It is really the norm, it ought to be the normal course of the Christian life that as you follow Christ, you follow his word, you will grow closer in your friendship, in your, as his word, companion with those who also follow Christ. You know, I know some of you probably will say, you know, I, I heard different people say it at times, like, you know, oh, I really, I just love my non Christian friends. You know, I'm so tight with them. We've known each other since, you know, we were gangsters in the neighborhood, you know, and so I'm tight with them, you know, uh, and, you know, I, 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 little, I, I understand it because there's that shared history, right? Those are friends that maybe when you were growing up, you thought, you know, you would you basically, you lived and died for one another in a sense. You really were there for each other in those, that history. But as you, as you continue your Christian, your Christian life, I hope you'll continue your friendship with them. But over the long haul, as you grow in your knowledge of God, you're following God's ways, and they do not, you're going to find that eventually you're going to have a, uh, you have a, your friendship with them is going to be a little less close, le- less close, and you're going to grow in your friendship with those who also follow God's word. Now, of course, there's rare exceptions. There's always rare exceptions. This is just generality, gen- speaking generality. But you're close, as you, if you're a, a the longer you are as a Christian, the, your closest friends not that they have to be, but they probably ought to be those who also follow Christ. Those who also follow Christ. Why? When you intentionally choose to surround yourself with fellow Christians who keep God's words, those Christian friends will, will sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. They will encourage you to obedience as, as Daniel and his friends did for one another. They will, they will be the ones who speak truth in your life, not just truth about yourself, but, but God's truths in your life, even telling you those painful, hurting, hurtful things so that out of love, you may become more like Christ. So who are your closest friends? I think that's a great, just kind of a good application question in this, in light of this. If your aim is to keep God's word because he is your portion, then you'll want to surround yourself with friends that are seeking the same thing. Once again, the psalmist ends this section with prayer. And uh, verse 64. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. He begins with a praise of God for his loving kindness. That's a, God's, uh, that's a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. God's loyal love. <clears throat> uh, sometimes called covenant, God's covenant love or just God's love. It's a love which basically where God is faithful to whatever he promised to do for you. And God's loyal love is evident all throughout the earth is what the psalmist says here. His love and kindness is all over the earth. All creation basically is a testimony to God, right? We know that. We know it's a testimony to his power, according to Romans 1. It's a testimony to his creativity, his wisdom, and yes, his love as well. 
The world that we live in, the, all creation exists because of God's word. It, it holds together. It, it's, it, it exists by, by his word. And he made it, think about, because he needed it? No, he didn't need it. But he made it for you and I, for mankind to dwell. He made this earth among, we've, and we've been looking all across our universe, right? We have powerful microscopes, yeah, telescopes, <laughs> telescopes that look for planets that we can live on. And we have yet to really, truly find a planet like ours. Our planet is so unique in this solar system. It is a testimony that God made this world for us to dwell. That is love. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, is a, a general kind of general love that he has for all mankind, all humanity. And it's test- everything we see in this world testifies to that, his love. In it, he provides resources for our food, our clothes, our shelter. God's love is shown to us not only every day in our creation, but God's love is shown to us every day in our salvation through his son, Jesus. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, knowing God's love then, that's why the psalmist prays and responds. He declares he sees God's love everywhere, and he prays that the Lord would teach him his word. Teach me your statutes. I know you love me. I know you have your, you, you are looking out for my best interest better and more, more than I am looking out for my best interest. So teach me your word because I know your word. And when I follow your word, it's in my best interest. It's for my good. Thus, he, God has said so. A desire, a prayer to, to ask God to teach us his words. Teach us his words. Because the Lord is his portion, the psalmist surrounds himself <clears throat> with others who share the same inheritance, which leads to prayer of praise for God's love and a prayer to be taught God's word. Well, <clears throat> we began talking about loss. And when we lose things, there's sorrow, there's disappointment, there's, there's distress. But for those whose portion is the Lord, we have a hope in the face of our loss. If ever there was a time in the history of Israel where they really might have been tempted to think that the Lord was no longer their portion, where they were tempted to lose all hope, it was probably during the destruction of Jerusalem, the first time it was completely destroyed, by the hands of Babylon in 586 BC, and its eventual exile of all the Israelites completely into Babylon. The city was destroyed. The people had basically were suffering in there before they were completely uh, uh, the, uh, conquered. They were, they were forced to eat their children. They were suffering in slavery now or dead. Jeremiah records all this in Lamentations, which we read for our call to worship. And there we see Jeremiah, through the, through, uh, as a prophet of the Lord, speaking God's words, God's words that give hope to Israel in the face of their loss of their city, their capital, their freedom, the loss of lives, the loss of family, loss of children, loss of hope, really. Complete and utter destruction. And Jeremiah writes these words, and he, he reminds them. He remind, God reminds Israel 
of their hope. Look at verse 19. This will kind of wrap up with this. Uh, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. He's remembering it all. He's asking God to remember what he's endured. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. So he remembers all he's gone through, and he's humbled by it. It's, it's, it's devastating, right? But this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. There's, there's something that he recalls to mind. It's, it's definitely not the destruction or affliction, okay? It's not that that's what gives him hope. He remembers, he knows that God remembers. God remembers him. That's what gives him hope. So, but what is it particularly that he calls to mind? Let's read on. Verse 22, 24. He remembers these truths from God's word. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. And remember, this is when they've lost everything, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. What a powerful, powerful lesson, powerful illustration, really, of, of our sermon this morning. In his affliction, Jeremiah remembers something which gives him hope. He remembers God. He remembered God's never-ending love, God's infallible compassion, God's great faithfulness. And he knows that these are all simply a manifestation of God's word that he remembers. God remembers because the Lord is his portion. And he remembers that the Lord is my portion. That's why I experience God's loving kindness. God's compassion, God's faithfulness every morning of my life, even as I've lost so much, or as a nation we've lost so much. The Lord is my inheritance, my possession, my treasure, my source of provision, sufficiency, and ultimately, one's hope. You can lose everything, as Jeremiah and Israel had, and still have hope, because you have what matters. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is your portion and my portion. And this is our hope. And this is the truth we hold on to. As followers of God, the Lord is our portion. That's, that's the truth. That's the principle. And so in light of that, just kind of leave you, uh, we have time. We'll kind of just give you a couple of questions to think about uh, for uh, maybe discussion along the way. What kind of losses, uh, what kinds of loss do you face in life? And how do you respond to them? Try that one more time. What kinds of loss do you face in life, and how do you respond to them? Just think about it. And you can try to apply it to every single type of loss, small losses to great losses, and think about how you respond to them. And that will show you what your where your mind is, your mindset is on. And how does knowing that the Lord is your portion help in the face of that loss? Now that you know, understand that loss is meant to uh, is a common experience, but I, as the one who has the Lord as my portion, the Lord is my greatest treasure, my, my great possession. How does that affect when you lose things? Certainly, there's the, you're not going to, it's not going to eliminate all sorrow of loss. There is sorrow. That, that's a normal, healthy, probably response to, to loss. But it's a, it's a emotional response that drives us to the Lord to put our hope in God. 
And the third question, just in light of the psalmist's words, how, how may the Lord be calling you to grow in keeping his words? Because it's not out of duty, but it's so that when we follow God's words, it, we may experience all that is, that is meant in the fact that the God is our, my portion. The reality is we have a whole lifetime where we're going to discover what, God, what it means that the Lord is our, our portion. And we won't know until we get to heaven to really understand what, the, what a great treasure he is. We have a sense of it. We thank God for his word. We thank God that he reveals to us. So let's, let's be people of his word and, let's, and let us, let us say we always allow it to keep our eyes on the Lord so that we would know and have hope because he's our portion in the face of our loss. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's respond with the final song and then I'll, I'll close in prayer at the end. Father, we ask that you would be always our vision. Be our wisdom, be our ruler. Lord, fill us with your words. Help us to be diligent in, in not only just reading and studying and hearing and meditating on your word, but help us to be those who keep your words, follow your words, not necessarily out of duty, but out of delight, so that we might know the joy and the, and the blessing and the sufficiency and the, and, the, and the great joy it is to have you as our portion, our possession, our treasure that we can never lose. And while we live, walk on this world, that is ultimately we will ever, where we will lose everything else. Father, for those who are here among us who are presently going through difficult losses, we especially pray that you would, by your spirit, encourage them with your word this morning. Remind them that the Lord is their portion. And may that be a source of encouragement to them. Father, for all of us, we ask that you would cause us to grow in how we keep your word. Help us to always remember that you have spoken in your word and revealed to us yourself. You who are full of loving kindness and compassion faithfulness. Lord, we know that you love us. You are looking out for us. And that all that goes on in our life is, not in, is, is, is in your control. Lord, let, let this perspective that's from your word be, our, be, be ours as we face these, the losses that we will inevitably face in this world. And help us to, therefore, be a, a light to our world, to be people who respond with hope always. A hope that is not only powerful and encouraging to all of us, but may be attractive to the world who, like us, are also facing loss all the time and yet have no hope in that face of loss. Lord, thank you for your word. Continue to cause us to remember, to keep your words. Thank you, Lord, that you remember and never forget. Father, we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.